Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day as we kick off a new week and just about to wrap up the month of March, a a month I don't think any of us will ever forget. Our lives have certainly changed dramatically this month. Hope you had a good weekend, stayed safe, and here we go with a new week as we continue to look at the impacts of COVID-19. We're going to talk with Purdue economist Jason Lusk on today's program as we look at both the general and ag economies and where he sees things going from here as we try to turn this economy back on. And we're going to talk with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. COVID-19 is being used as a reason that EPA will uh, kind of punt on any changes yet in their small refinery exemptions policy. We'll talk with Jeff about that later in today's program. And, of course, we'll also talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. But we'll start things off with Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Hope you are well. Yes, Mike. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be with you, but you're right. This is certainly an unprecedented time for all of us as we've been sheltering in place and trying to figure out uh, what is any semblance of normal anymore. Uh, We do know that the president announced during a press conference last night it's going to be April 30th uh, until he thinks that we're going to be free of some of these uh, binds and, and able to move about a little bit more freely. So I hope everybody is gearing up to stay safe for a few more weeks. You know, I was thinking about this, too, over the weekend. Uh, A lot of things are happening right now as far as changes and relaxing of different rules and regulations. Uh, Some of those may be welcome. Some, I wonder if if, uh, we've realized yet the impact those could have and how soon when this is over, whenever that is, it, will they get put back in place, or will some of them be put back in place? I, I, it's going to be an interesting time we go through here as far as some of those rules and regulations. It definitely is. You know, I just don't know that there's the bandwidth to really enforce those regulations given the uncertain environment that we're in right now. But certainly the food safety regulations are still in place, but they're making some, uh, I think, real workarounds that are common sense. For example, making sure that you can have food that was labeled for just restaurant use and be able to sell that at a retail level uh, to try to uh, unleash unleash some of the bounds that are keeping people from moving across interstate commerce, like truckers trying to get goods delivered. So some of those have been really good, but you're absolutely right. There's going to be a whole textbook or dozens written after this about how things have changed under the coronavirus. Yeah, I wonder how many things we're going to see. Well, you know, we've got through this long without such and such a rule or regulation. Maybe we just keep going this way. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, we had the announcement on CRP, the general sign-up, and they accepted over 3 million acres. Yes, I think that that was a little lower than we thought. But, you know, uh, CRP is something that a lot of people really count on, and it was important in this last farm bill that they raised the cap so that more acres could be enrolled. So I think we're going to continue to watch that, especially, as you know, Mike, the commodity markets are saying there's going to be a lot of production coming online in 2020. And so perhaps this is a good time that folks are looking at idling those 3 million acres. 
Yeah, we're going to see how that plays out. Of course, USDA extending uh, loan deadlines. Uh, Everything's just kind of in flux right now because of COVID-19. It is. um, Not only is USDA making a lot of changes, and we had uh, Deputy Sensky on our open mic, and he gave a pretty good overview of all the different things they're doing to try to help producers out. Uh, I've been hearing, I don't know about you, but I've been hearing that some of the local FSA offices and NRCS offices are are really slammed right now, even though they're only doing appointment only. They're really, really busy with producers having questions. And then, of course, another big thing that we still are waiting for the details to emerge is this SBA, or Small Business Administration, loan program that's got about a quarter of that $2 trillion in aid that was signed into law. Uh, that is something that we think uh, farmers could perhaps be eligible for those kinds of loans. But like the devil is always in the details, Mike, and we haven't been able mm-hmm. to figure out how that might work for a farmer who has employees. So stay tuned on that one. Yeah, still a lot of unknowns. And we know in that stimulus package you get uh, money put into the CCC. It'll be interesting to see how USDA decides to use that money. It is. There's another $14 billion to replenish the CCC uh, just for the fund that's been used for market facilitation program payments, and then another $9.5 billion that's targeted just for livestock producers and specialty crops and local ag markets for the first time being included. And so there's going to be a, probably a different look at how, you know, probably not MFP three exactly as two was delivered, but uh, perhaps part of that mechanism is going to be employed. Uh, USDA has been kind of quiet about the details on that as well. So it gives us a lot of things to continue to look into to try to tell folks how this might play out as soon as they're forthcoming with more of the details. We've talked a lot about, and we've looked closely at the food supply chains getting uh, food to the retail stores and to consumers. Now we're going into spring planning time. It's going to be interesting to see any impacts of COVID-19 on the ag supply chain inputs to producers. That's right. And we've been asking folks to let us know if they're seeing some holdups. I was on a call Friday that a gentleman uh, from eastern Iowa was talking about the fact that some of his local suppliers don't want to jump into a truck. But most of the other guys I've talked to have been telling me that things are going as usual. There's extra safety precautions, of course, but that seed and fertilizer and chemicals are all moving, just albeit a little bit differently, as people don't shake hands and come in close contact with each other. So um, I think farmers are itching to get out in the field and the ones that have already done so, especially in some of the southern parts of the U.S., have told us that the things have moved pretty smoothly. As I've been saying, uh, farmers are looking forward to that social distancing, right, when they're out there uh, uh, in the tractor cab and planting. Yeah, absolutely. And I talked to uh, one of my renters last night, and he's all geared up, ready to go. And I think the only thing that you know, we're all watching closely is what we always watch this time of year, and that's the weather. Yeah, still a big unknown then. Speaking of weather, we're going to be talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson next. Meanwhile, Sarah, real quick, I know uh, uh, we're all trying to adjust to this new normal, but it's amazing to see everything shut down as much as it is. Well, it is, uh, but what a success story for agriculture that we've still been producing and delivering food 
uh, and all the folks along the supply chain are out there making sure groceries are stocked you know, despite some occasional hoarding. I think it's a good time for people to be that much more appreciative of what American agriculture can do for consumers every day. Yeah, hopefully people will be more aware and appreciative of what it takes to to get food to them and uh, how fortunate we are. Thank you, Sarah. Take care and be safe. You too, Mike. Thanks. Sarah Wyan, editor, president of AgriPulse Communications. Well, some severe weather in parts of the country over the weekend, but we're starting to get ready to turn that page, that calendar, to April. Talk more about planting weather next with Bryce Anderson. Stay with us. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's go to the weather bunker where we find DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, how are you doing? Mike, I'm doing well. Um, uh, I certainly cannot complain uh, relative to everything that's going on. Um, I'm able to get outside, look at the blue sky that we have in Omaha, Nebraska right now, and uh, take in a little bit of the uh, changing of the season, and so, you know, all things considered, uh, that's a pretty good situation. I do hope that everybody is able to uh, continue working with uh, this this uh, historic uh, scenario that we are going through right now. Well, you mentioned this uh, changing weather. It's that, that transitional time, and we, we've uh, seen some wild swings already, and, of course, some severe weather over the weekend. Boy, we, we sure did. Uh, pretty much from the... Uh, from the uh, Mississippi Valley eastward, uh, there were a lot of reports of heavy rain, uh, flash flooding, hail, uh, strong winds, uh, all the way from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, east clear through uh, Indianapolis. Uh, quite a bit of northern through south-central Illinois was involved. Parts of southeastern Missouri were. Um, rainfall uh, was anywhere from uh, about one and a half to around four inches. Uh, so it was a harsh weekend and um you know there's a there's a lot of real soggy ground out there and and it just uh, keeps the pressure on in terms of uh, thinking about field work uh, with everything that's going on what's interesting mike to me is that uh last week i put a blog together and uh and did a little bit of looking at uh, some uh, moisture reports uh, some some precipitation totals for the calendar year so far in, uh, in uh, quite a bit of the Midwest, and there are quite a few weather stations uh, that have had more or, yeah, either uh, as much or more precipitation for the calendar year this year than they did at this time last year. And then, of course, all of that uh, precip occurrence is on ground that is already very wet. And so, you know, that brings, again, uh, kind of a re-emphasis on the idea that uh, it's going to be a slow start to field work, and I, I think that that just uh, continues uh, being a point of emphasis as we get into the end of the month here. Yeah, we're about to turn that calendar page to April, which will really focus us even more on planting. Uh, what do you see this week ahead? Well, during this week, uh, it's going to be a fairly dry week, except for the northern tier of uh, states, and we could see some... Uh, some moderate to locally heavy rain in Minnesota, 
and then uh, a mix of rain and snow in the far northern plains from Aberdeen, South Dakota, north through most of North Dakota. Uh, so this is, uh, this is going to be following what has been a, a fairly dry period over the last week or so. So, um, you know, from that standpoint, it's not just moisture on top of moisture from, from that angle, but uh, it is going to, of course, slow things down uh, for, for uh, you know, getting ground into shape and all that sort of thing. And then over the remainder of the central United States, it is going to be fairly dry until we get to the Delta, where they could see some heavy uh, rainfall and uh, more flood potential there. Now, next week is going to be sort of a a mixed week when it comes to uh, rainfall. Uh, We're likely to see near normal activity over the northern tier of states, but then over most of the Midwest and quite a bit of the central and southern plains, uh, the chances for above normal precip are going to be uh, fairly strong uh, because the upper air pattern is still trough west, ridge east. That keeps these disturbances kind of rolling out of the Pacific coast through the middle of the country and just keeps that moisture probability uh, fairly high. What about temperatures? Temperatures are going to be kind of variable. Uh, we're going to have quite a bit of uh, above normal uh, temperature uh, pattern development during this week. Next week, um, there's going to be more variability. Overall, uh, the, uh, the trend is going to be near to below normal north and then near to above normal south. And, uh, you know, let's break it at about Interstate 70 uh, for quite a bit of uh, that uh, temperature uh, pattern delineation. Uh, but that uh, also brings in the potential then to develop uh, thunderstorm activity uh, with that temperature difference that we are going to see. What's your longer range forecast for the mid to late April? You know, the the scenario is uh, is looking um, near to below normal on temperatures um, because this uh, this very saturated soil profile that we have is not going to go away real quickly and with the with the amount of soil moisture that we have uh, you start uh, bringing warmer air into the picture doing some evaporation of that of that soil moisture that just kind of adds uh, to uh, sort of a thermostat effect almost and it keeps uh, it keeps a real warm scenario from developing because you have to have to uh, take in all that moisture and uh, get rid of it or move it into uh, water vapor by doing that, you take away uh, the the uh, effect of a, a warmer temperature trend. So because of that, uh, I think that near to below normal on uh, temperatures is uh, quite likely. And along with that, we still have the, uh, the potential then with all the low-level soil moisture uh, to uh, produce uh, near to above normal precipitation. I've been saying, Mike, for uh, quite a while that I think we're going to have a slow field work season. And if we can get through... Uh, planting by the end of May, I think that's going to be an accomplishment this year. I was going to say, from what you were describing for April, it sounds like it's going to be uh, hit and miss. I mean, maybe some windows here or there, but uh, no widespread, uh, uh, you know, release of the planters. It's going to it's going to be pretty spotty. Yes, it is, and and you know, um, I, I think that there's going to be some some uh, technology. Uh, pushing of the envelope this year. Um, I've talked to growers uh, over the past uh, number of months, you know, before all of the 
before we we got uh, curtailed from doing a lot of uh, socializing, right? Uh, during at the farm shows, uh, you know, in uh, Kentucky and in Texas, and earlier last uh, winter uh, at, in Chicago at our DTN Ag Summit, and and to a to an individual, the idea of being willing to uh, start even when ground is a little bit wetter than you'd like to see it, and moving that equipment along faster uh, to take advantage of uh, favorable weather is uh, something uh, that that everybody has, it seems, who I've talked with has been thinking about and making plans for, and I think we're going to see that this spring. What about those dry pockets, as few as they may be this spring, that, but there are some, how are they doing? Well, the southwestern plains especially uh, is going to have some areas, uh, some, some occurrences of precip this week, uh, but I don't think we're going to see an appreciable change in uh, the, the drought situation in uh, southwestern Kansas on into southern Colorado and so forth, uh, south through the Texas panhandle as well. Uh, we are seeing some uh, moderate to locally severe drought in those areas, and I don't think that that's going to change very much. And then in uh, southern Texas, uh, there's uh, a large area from San Antonio south that is in uh, extreme drought. And uh, I don't think we're going to see much of an improvement there either uh, for this uh, coming uh, uh, several weeks. Also in the far west, we're getting a little bit of a, of a drought, uh, uh, drought improvement easing in parts of the far west. But I don't think that it's going to be substantial for the rest of uh, the springtime, we're starting to move into the drier season, especially out in California. All right, Bryce. So I'm just thinking about the the river situation, especially when you talk about a lot of moisture up in the northern part of the country. That means moisture coming down the rivers. Not Maybe not as bad as last year, but uh, still something to watch this spring. Oh, it definitely is. We've got a lot of minor flooding in place right now in the Illinois Basin, the Mississippi uh, Basin, and the, in the uh, Missouri Basin, and I think that's going to stay with us. If we can stay away from major flooding, I think that will be an improvement right there uh, for this season compared with uh, a year ago. All right, Bryce. Take care. Stay safe. Talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. DTM Meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Up next, we're going to talk with Purdue economist Jason Lusk. So we take a look at this uh, situation with both the general economy and the ag economy, the impacts of COVID-19, the long-term impacts. How do you restart an economy that is shut down like this? And how long does it take for it to come back? Do you start it up a little bit at a time? Or can you just kind of open the door and let it go again? What will be those challenges moving forward? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams 
Well, we're about to wrap up a month like we've never seen before. We'll probably say that again a month from now. How do we move forward from this? We're looking at two levels, of course, COVID-19. There's the medical side of it. There's the economic side of it. We're going to focus on the economic side of it as we're joined now by Jason Lusk, Purdue economist. Jason, thank you for joining us. As an economist, how do you look at what's happening right now, both the general and ag economies? Well, I think uncertainty is the word of the day. (laughs) It's really kind of hard to know what to expect in the future, but... um, Uncertainty isn't really positive at the moment. Macro economy um, looks like, you know, if we're not already in a recession, likely to be in one soon. Um, on the ag economy side, it uh, depends on the commodity we're talking about. Um, we've actually seen a few little rebounds in prices for some of our major commodity crops in the last few days and weeks, but that's coming off of some fairly long declines. Um so a lot of uncertainty, particularly on the retail food side of things. I think I've been inundated with media calls to talk, to talk about whether we're going to have enough food to eat. I think the answer on that question is yes. Um, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, details to be sorted out in that food supply chain. Yeah, there's so many for every action or a reaction scenarios. I mean, uh, we have this great increase in, in retail food sales, but we've basically lost for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, that uh, restaurant, that food service sector. So watching that play out. And then, of course, on the fuel side with prices low, that's one thing, but nobody's really hardly driving, so there's not much demand. We're seeing the impact on the ethanol industry. I mean, there's just so many of these scenarios being played out now. Uh, That's right. I think that's why there's so much uncertainty at the moment. it looks like we um, had some, you know, a, a relief bill bill passed by Congress that will provide some monetary support and help. And looks like part of that included agriculture. Um, so at least that, you know, a little bit of help coming that way. But yeah, by and large, the, the question, you know, the uncertainty is right. I think on the aggregate demand side of things, um, you know, it's kind of hard to know. I mean. As far as I know, one of the symptoms of this COVID-19 is not eating more food. So um, I think a lot of the disruptions we're seeing are shifting in where people are buying. So from, uh, you know, a restaurant to grocery store. Um, and then also a te- what I would consider probably a temporary demand increase. You know, from some of the statistics I've heard, you know, traffic in grocery stores was up about 300% over the last um you know, a week or two. And, and so there's a big demand increase at the moment, but it's mainly people pulling inventory out of warehouses and grocery stores onto their own shelves. But uh, it's not like they're going to eat it all right now. Um, and so I think, you know, yes, we see some increases. You can pick particular commodities um, and see that we've had some pretty dramatic run-ups in prices at the wholesale level. But I think, you know, I've you know, interpret that as large, hopefully, temporary phenomenon in the sense that if we go back to something that looks like normal in a few weeks, um, you know, it's not like there's suddenly more demand out there. We're talking with Purdue economist Jason Lusk. Well, let's look ahead. Whenever that period is where we start returning somewhat to normal, how do you think we restart this economy? There's all this debate about, you know, do you let certain sections of the countries get going opened up before others or how it's going to play out how, what scenario do you see in restarting an economy yeah 
Well, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be an epidemiologist, so I'm sure that you know aspect has to factor prominently into this discussion. Um, and you know, but I do think you know it's almost like it's been inappropriate to talk about economic trade-offs. But I, I think there's no doubt about it that that this um, event is having economic consequences, very serious ones. And you know, there it's, it sounds crude and it sounds you know harsh, but doing some cost-benefit analysis of you know, what are we what are we quarantining and social distancing measures doing in terms of benefits of preventing future you know spread of this disease and uh, or or um, you know virus, you know versus the very real costs that we're also seeing and and you know people don't like to think about it that way but I think we also have to realize that you know, when people lose jobs and when they you know lose their income or fired that that has real um, health costs as well and. So I think hopefully some of that calculation will go in. But when that happens, when it's appropriate, you know, I think it's still a little too early to tell. And I think one of the concerns even among the economists I've talked to have is that even if we tried to return to normal too quickly, it could actually have adverse economic consequences if we have, you know, another spike in in uh, outbreaks in another you know few weeks after you know going back to normal too soon. And and that's where really you got to bring the health experts into this discussion. Right. Obviously, the number one concern is for people's health. Uh, but you look beyond that and, you know, jobs, are they going to be there? Are those businesses going to reopen? Probably some of them will not. And I, I think when we went into this, as big of a shock as it was, I think for most of us, there was this thought in our mind, OK, there'll be some point, some date, whatever that is, hopefully sooner rather than later, where it's like an all clear is sounded and we just kind of open things back up and we go back. It's now becoming painfully obvious that it's not going to work that way. And whatever that date is for whatever part of the country you're in, it's going to be a ways off you. I agree. And, you know, it's it's amazing what our world, world looked like even two years ago. Not two years, I'm sorry, two weeks, two weeks ago. Yeah that if you'd have told me some of the things we're doing now we're doing, I would have said, that's crazy. That's impossible. So I've, I've come to realize that, uh, you know, what was formerly impossible may be possible. And, you know, we may be shut down longer than I, you know, ever thought, uh, possible. I never thought we'd be, you know, living in the world we are now. So, yeah, but I think, you know, how we ease back out of this will be difficult to say and it will probably vary you know that that's the thing i think a lot of people where we focus on federal responses and you know what the presidential administration is doing but to be honest a lot of this is local or you know state regulation insofar as you know can restaurants reopen can you know what what businesses are deemed essential or not essential those are largely state decisions and so it's not impossible to imagine that you may start having this patchwork of responses as we go on out into the future and, you know, so much about social distancing, while that's certainly been a, a change in all of our lives, it's, it's one thing to do it when the weather hasn't been very good. Uh, staying in is not, not as hard. But as the weather improves, it's going to be harder to keep people inside and not out where they're more apt to be in contact with others. Well, I think you're right. Um, you know, I, again, I'm, not, I'm no epidemiologist, but ho- hopefully, you know, if it's like uh, a normal flu, there. You know, cases do seem to go down when it gets warmer, whether that happens for this virus or not. I, I, I believe there's some debate on. But, uh, yeah, keeping people indoors is kind of tough. And, I've, you know, even walking our own dog in our own neighborhood, you know, you normally see a neighbor on the street say hello. I've noticed we're kind of keeping our distance you know, mm-hmm. from each other. Yeah. 
So can we all be outside and um, and be uh, and, and do that in a spread out way? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, so far it looks like it's not like there's a real any real policing of our outside activity. But you're, I think that's right. It's going to be more challenging. You saw, you know, probably concerns in Florida about shutting down beaches and you know whether that was allowed or not allowed. And um, you know, those are tough issues because they're uh, economic consequences associated with with closing down some of those outdoor activities. And not only our economy closed down, but much of the world's economy closed down. Have we ever seen anything close to this when you're trying to come back from a global situation like this? Well, you know, you you mentioned earlier unemployment rate. The the unemployment or the sort of job losses, unemployment filings that we uh, came out last week were were truly unprecedented. You know, like three million you know filings for unemployment, which is you know, orders of magnitude higher than anything we've ever seen in, in the history since we've been tracking this thing. That's just, you know, domestically. And then abroad, you're, you're right, too. I mean, I think one way to kind of think about this in terms of impacts on food and ag markets is something like a global recession. And, of course, the causes are very, very different between now and what happened in the Great Recession, that, that you know, where, where the problem started in the financial sector and bled out more broadly. But I think that's one way to think about this. And here in the U.S., we are a, a net exporter of agricultural products. And, you know, some of our big biggest markets for things like meat and um, and even, you know, commodity crops like soybeans and the rest are, you know, in countries that have been hev- heavily hit, whether it's China or Japan or South Korea. And so I think there's going to be weakening demand probably for those countries. If for no other reason, just put the virus aside, if their incomes fall uh, because of, you know, recessionary kind of pressures, that's going to put downward pressure on demand for our exports. And so I think, you know, that's another worrying sign. Although, you know, often it is said that agriculture can be counter-cyclical to the broader economy. That may happen. It's kind of hard to see how that's going to happen right at this moment. But um, Hmm. that is something people often uh, argue. Well, when we came into this, the general economy was booming. The ag economy was struggling. So there was that counter uh, cyclical thing. So maybe we'll see what happens through this, uh, uh, how this plays out. But it'll be it will be interesting to watch. And unfortunately, uh, you know, there is no playbook to fall back on. Right? Uh, we're in uncharted waters here. We are. We, you know, that's uh, the world throws things at us, and we got to figure out how to deal with it. You know, one. You know, if you want to call it an upside, I don't know, I'd be hesitant to call it that. But, you know, one of the biggest constraints for agriculture over the past few years as the general economy has been doing well is labor and um, finding workers that, you know, to work in various aspects of agriculture. And you know, to the extent there's less pressure on that labor market, uh, we may see some relief there. Jason, thank you very much. We'll stay in touch through this and get your perspectives. Thank you for being with us. Stay safe. Yeah, happy to be on. Jason Lusk, Purdue Economist. Up next, Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. His reaction to EPA's non-action on changing their small refinery policy. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So I was thinking about just recent events with the ethanol industry. You have the Tenth Circuit Court ruling basically saying EPA was not handling the small refinery exemptions the right way. 
then we think, all right, that's going to be the blueprint for changes at EPA. And then we hear about, well, the administration may appeal that decision, wait through that period. They do not. So then there's hope, okay, now they'll they'll make changes. And now with COVID-19, it looks like EPA's side it gives them a reason or trying to justify, okay, we're not going to make any changes during this time. Let's talk about that with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, uh, is EPA using COVID-19 as as an excuse not to change a policy that the courts say they need to change? Well, that's exactly what's happening, Mike, and I, I think it's just uh, baffling, and, and frankly, it's it's uh, ludicrous that, that, that EPA would use this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, um, uh, as, as a veil or, you know, as a reason uh, to delay implementation of, of the Tenth Circuit Court decision. And, and I want to just rewind a little bit. You know, we got that decision out of the Tenth Circuit on January 24th, 99-page unanimous decision from that court that said EPA was acting illegally in granting these exemptions. Um, EPA had until March 9th to appeal that decision. Uh, you know, they got to March 9th and said, ah, we want a little more time to think about whether we want to appeal or not. So they got a 15-day extension. Uh, March 24th came and went, and EPA did not um, decide to appeal. They did not ask for a rehearing. So we took that as a signal that, okay, this is over with. EPA is going to abide by this court decision, uh, and we're going to move forward. Well, Friday we find out um, that EPA says, oh, because of this uh, coronavirus situation, we're just going to kick the can and wait until the courts have decided what they want to do with the uh, refiners' request uh, for a rehearing. Um, so very frustrating, uh, very disappointing. Uh, but, I, you know, given everything, given the history with this EPA, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. So EPA said it would push a May 1st deadline for fuel terminals to stop selling winter-grade gasoline to retailers until May 20th as a way to protect gasoline supply during the uh, the uh, coronavirus crisis. Yep. What's your reaction to that, and how does that impact the ethanol industry? Well, it, it doesn't have a, a significant impact, Mike. Um, you know, that, that's uh, EPA took a, a whole series of actions last Thursday and Friday, and that was another one of them. They said, um, look, the, the system is still full of winter-grade gasoline um, because consumption has fallen off a cliff. Um, there's still a ton of, of winter-grade gasoline uh, in, in the system, in the terminals, in the pipelines. Um, and so they're giving the marketplace extra time to kind of burn through that remaining product before switching over to summer grade uh, gasoline. You know, we didn't see that as as anything that's um, that that really impacts the ethanol industry one way or the other. Uh, our biggest concern was was what they said about the court decision. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big impact right now just the fact that even with lower prices at the pump. People just aren't driving uh, very much. There's hardly anywhere to go to do anything. So many things are closed. Uh, uh, so this, we talk about demand destruction. That's what we're seeing right yeah. now. And we, we, you and I have talked about this in the past. That has a ripple down effect. Of course, we see uh, ethanol plants either idling or cutting back, and that means less corn they're buying, and it just works its way down the system. Yeah, that's right, Mike. We're seeing uh, you know anywhere from a forty to sixty percent. Uh, demand loss uh, for, for for motor gasoline, just a, a you know a 
40 to 60 percent reduction in, in consumption, uh, and that means ethanol because you know we're t- at least 10 percent of every gallon out there is is falling off a cliff as well. Um, the result of that is we've got a number of facilities, dozens of ethanol facilities that are idling production today. Um, their on-site storage tanks are, are completely full. Um, they're, you know, really had no choice but to just idle operations temporarily uh, until consumption picks back up. We think there's probably something around three and a half billion gallons of, of annual production capacity that is sitting idle today um, as a consequence of, of this situation. We and we think it's there's going to be more. We know there's a number of facilities that. Uh, that are not buying corn today, they're going to um, grind what they have uh, on hand and, and then take steps to, to idle their own uh, capacity. So uh, things are not good in the ethanol industry today, um, and we're uh, crossing our fingers and, and hoping that uh, this coronavirus situation improves and, and we turn a corner and, and people are able to go back to work and back to school soon so we can start uh, start consuming gasoline again. What about demand for DDGs? We've heard that maybe China will increase uh, purchases on those. Well, that is the other interesting thing that's going on is is when you, you know, when you shutter uh, 20 or 25 percent of of the ethanol industry, you're not just reducing ethanol supplies; you're also reducing supplies of distillers' grains um, and CO2. I don't think a lot of people realize that that a lot of our plants capture CO2. Uh, they sell it to the the, the food uh, food processing and and beverage um, bottling industries and and meat packing, um, and we're starting to hear a lot of concern uh, both about the shortage of distillers grains and the shortage of CO2 um, that's coming from from our plants uh, shutting down operations. Um, we are hopeful that uh, we are seeing some some increase in demand for for DDG through um, exports to China. Uh, you know, we think the, the gears are turning there, and that market should be reopening uh, for distillers' grains exports uh, soon. But now we're in a situation where our supplies are are, are being um, curtailed because because our plants are shutting down. So uh, the timing just hasn't hasn't been our friend in this whole situation. Yeah, demand goes up for DDGs, and your production is down because of the other issues. Wow, and more exactly. frustration with EPA. That's just an ongoing story. Jeff, thanks a lot. Be safe. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. All right, that wraps it up for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be safe. Hope you'll tune in again tomorrow to AOA. AOA.